grace and mercy that you've given us. Thank you for your son dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, on this Sunday we gather here as a church, Lord, Church 860, here at a school, just to look at your word and see what you want to tell us. And we ask that you do that. We ask that you please soften our hearts so you can reveal your message to us as individuals, Lord, and as a whole. We love you and praise you. Please give us a heart of worship today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Continuing our study in the book of Titus, my goal today is to make it through chapters not only two, but three as well. And that's probably going to be a little bit difficult, but we're going to aim for that and see how it goes. Um, just to recap a little bit, what we learned in chapter one, Titus is a young pastor leading a church in the island of Crete. Crete's a big island. Um, there's probably a lot of smaller um, satellite churches branching off of what Titus is probably the bishop of. And this letter is specifically to Titus, not for the entire congregation. It's meant to be a personal, uh, a personal message, but ends up being a book in the Bible where we all get to read into today. Uh, there are the Cretans. We talked about the Cretans and them being a very stubborn type of people. Um, forget exactly what the verse was, but they rough on the edges, liars, deceivers, and Titus has to lead them. Titus has to lead a rough people. It's just not a perfectly groomed um, type of people that are just, it's going to be easy. So Titus is going to face a lot of challenges. And as Timothy does, and we've discussed the relationship between Timothy and Titus, they're both sub-pastor, or they're head pastors, but under the direction of Paul. And this is one of the pastoral epistles, uh, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy are, and they're receiving direction. We also learned what it means to be a bondservant, a bondservant and the self-sacrifice that that requires. We learned about who are the elect in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and what the elect looks like, and how that was once the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, and now as the Gentiles, all who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, are now considered as part of the elect. And lastly, we discussed about appointing leaders with qualities such as sober-mindedness, not greedy for money, self-controlled, and not quick-tempered. So now we start chapter 2. What's chapter 2 look like? Chapter 2 is going to describe to us the roles of the church, you guys, the congregation. And it's funny, you don't just come to church and stand at a pew, come and sing, Kumbaya, my lord. I could have done that one. Kumbaya. <laughs> could have get a kind of campfire going. Yeah, we could have. But you don't do that. See, we don't do that and just, we don't stand up, sit down. Stand up, sit down, go home, and no one even knows your name. Everyone here is an individual. You're, part, you're coming here, you're part of a family. That's what Church 860 is. We're a family here. And that should be all churches. When you go to church, it should not be just solitude. You're coming to fellowship. The word of, the, the word of God you can take home with you. You can digest them and digest it every single day. But why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? It's the fellowship. So, that being said, as a congregation, Paul breaks us up into categories, and you can slot yourself into one of these categories and realize what is your responsibility, your obligation within the church, 
and how to interact with others. So let's do that. Let's read. Verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Older saints are so valuable to the church. They're the ones that have the stories worth listening to. Those trials that are brand new to you and I are closed chapters to those who have been around longer. How much more valuable are the elders within the church who have been walking with the Lord for a long period of time? I'll tell you what, if you're ever looking to seek counsel from your brothers and sisters in Christ, start with someone more elder than you. Whether it be in spirit or just in age, you'll be surprised how much you can learn just by listening to their wisdom. And I'm glad to see all ages of, uh, of life represented here in our church. We have uh, elderly, we have mid-age, we have young teenagers, and we have now two babies in, uh, in our church, three to come. Yeah. It was just two years ago where we had zero babies. But that's precious because now with this diversity, those older men, we have now that obligation and that opportunity to capitalize on what Paul's telling us. Provide your wisdom. Bring down, uh, share the torch of wisdom is how I wanted to put it. See, as you age and the finances get more difficult, as is common with retirement and such, as friends and loved ones begin to pass, you may start to feel forgotten by God. Listen, don't let Satan rob you of knowing what you're really worth. The Bible tells us in Job 12, verse 12, Wisdom is with aged men, and with length of days understanding. So make yourself available to the Lord. Because God loves you and still wants to use you. And you're invaluable to His ministry. Now, older men... The verse instructs us to teach these things. Teach to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. And how can you teach if you aren't yourself living by example? We're living in a day and age that our youth can sniff out hypocrisy. And when they find it, everything you have to say is disqualified. And what happens when you've been doing something for a long time? When you're the most senior in experience of a group of people, what happens? It's natural. You teach others and they want to follow your lead. Older men, you are to practice these things consistently. So when the time comes, you're ready. You've been there. You've faced this. You've conquered that. God would ask us to make yourselves available. At the end of our lives, many people ask, what was their purpose? What are you leaving behind? And this is your chance. You can leave behind the wisdom given to you through time by God for younger generations that they also may start teaching the babes. If not, you'll be seeing an epidemic which is already happening today. The drunk seek how to be sober from other drunkards in a spiritual sense. People want to seek God. They ask, who is he? And they're asking the heathen, who's going to give them the skewed interpretation of who God is. And there you go. False doctrine. That's how that happens. Verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of the good things. We could probably skip over this because there are no older women here. All women here are youthful. <laughs> but you youthful women, when you become older, three things to mention. That word reverent, you know what that means? It means to be respectful, but to an extreme. In other words, be super respectful in behavior. Be deeply respectful. 
how do you carry yourself? Let me ask you. In church, out and about, how do you dress? Do you dress in a way that is deeply respectful to you and to those around you? I remember in another church there would be some churchgoers that came in in skin-tight jeans and looked like they were going out for a night in a nightclub, really, than going to church. And it's people like that that would actually distract the older and even the younger men um, that went alongside. See, that's not right. And people like that make it harder on the young and old men because now they have to actively participate in self-control in a place where Christians are supposed to feel like they're in a safe haven. It's difficult because here, even at Church 860, we turn away, we don't turn away the sinner from Christ. On the contrary, we invite the sinners. We're all sinners, right? Because we want to win them to Christ, grow them, and then send them off with the Lord. So if we get people like that, it's okay. Praise the Lord, but as they grow in the Word, you better believe we're going to turn them to Proverbs 31. Teach them how to be a respectful woman. All in due time. But that's what it means to be reverent in behavior or how you dress. Reverent. Secondly, when you are reverent, reverent, it also means you have a deep respect for your husband. You are above reproach. We said last week that you should have one wife. Men, but ladies, don't think you're off the hook. You are on the on the phone with another man and you say, oh, I'm just talking with my best friend. If that best friend is a male, you got a problem. The only male best friend you should have in your life should be your husband. That's why you married him. You figured out a long time ago that you were best friends and that's why you decided to get married. And by saying yes to him, you are saying no to the rest of the world. There's no need to have another best friend of the male gender in your life, regardless of his sexual orientation. A lot of, a lot of girls use that as a loophole. Oh, he's, he doesn't go that way. Doesn't matter. Keep yourself above reproach. Secondly, slanderers. You can replace that word with gossipers. Ladies, there's no need to gossip. And those things should be removed from your conversation immediately. In fact, that word in the passage, slanderers, in the Greek, translates to diabolos. Which, maybe you could start piecing together where this is going. It's where the Spanish language gets its word diablo, which means devil. Devilish things. It's, it's sinful. Long story short, gossip is sinful. It doesn't edify others. It's not uplifting, therefore it should be removed from our conversation. That doesn't apply to just the world, that applies to church as well. It can happen here as well. When you find yourself doing it, cut it out. Easy, said and done. Paul asks us to do it, we should get it done. Did you realize how this verse said not to be given to much wine? Let's talk about that. If you're a Christian woman or a Christian wife or mom and the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart to not drink that cup of wine, it's simple. Don't do it. We brushed up on that last week as well. But is it a sin to have a glass of wine or a glass of beer with dinner? It's not. It's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be drunk. Galatians 5.21 will tell us. My father growing up rarely had a drink. If he did, it was a rare occasion, probably at dinner or at a special event. And he did that as an example to his family of what alcohol was in his life. So it could be an example to us of how we should treat it. That was his choice. You may not have grown up that way. Maybe you grew up in a home that was faucets of sangria and <laughs> Toilets of lager. That's that's you, eh? 
maybe you grew up in an abusive household where alcohol took a serious toll on your life and it's affected who you are today. Either way, we all know the effects and consequences of excessive alcohol in our community. Fatal accidents, blackouts, rape. You be the judge if you sip it or not. The Bible says not to get drunk, but I'll let the Holy Spirit tell you the rest. Verses 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Again, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Friends, the divorce rate in American Europe is staggering. And people are starting to wonder what's going on. So when they look at the church and realize that we aren't any better, it's blasphemy to the Word of God. I know far too many people, Christian people, who find themselves in the same divorce and marital and affair problems as the rest of the world. We're supposed to be different. We learned just a few weeks ago how marriage between a husband and a wife is an earthly reflection of the marriage between Christ and the church. Husbands, if we're divorcing our wives or having an affair behind our wives' backs, what does that say about Jesus' love for the church? Are we saying Jesus is a backstabber or the cheater almighty? That's direct blasphemy of the word of God if I have ever heard it. Hopefully it's not where I upset a few people. But you know, we can love these characteristics described by Paul for younger women to follow into one category. One obligation, one responsibility. What is that? You are accountable for maintaining your family. Let me say that again. You are accountable for maintaining your family. You cover the family. When you come to church and your husband is showered, the, the kids' hairs are all combed, everybody's fed, it's a reflection of you maintaining your family. Wives having a deep personal relationship with God is so important. You should pray without ceasing. Dive into God's Word daily. But let me tell you something, if you, if being in the ministry so much causes you to sacrifice you tending to your husband or to your kids and the family starts falling apart because mom hasn't been covering them, it's a problem. Let me tell you a little secret, ladies. You can minister to your husband just by feeding him. Husbands come home and dinner's ready and the plates are all la are laced out. And oh, is that what? Yes. Yes, honey, I know it's your favorite. I know it's your favorite. Come have a seat. Come and I know you've had a long day. And he says, How did I get so lucky? Wow. You truly are a blessing from the Lord. Love you. And maybe he planned to come home and complain about something you did, but nothing. It's forgotten. Ladies, your biggest ministry is your family. We talked about that last week. It affects the husband, the kids, the grandma, the grandpa, the dog, the fish, you name it. Even the monster-in-law. Because the word of God is not blasphemy. Last thing on this verse, I promise, is that I find interesting how Paul tells Titus, teach the older men, teach the older women, teach the younger men. He doesn't say to teach the younger women. He directs the older women to teach the younger women. In other words, Titus, you should have no business uh, 
putting yourself in that situation. As a man, as a pastor, you are to be above, above reproach. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts. You bet your bottom dollar, Paul, Paul isn't changing the word of God just for Titus. That's a word for all pastors. Pastors are to remain above reproach, not giving even a hint of what might be sinful. Interesting for sure. Verse 6, likewise exhort the young man to be sober-minded. That word sober-minded, we talked about it as well. In the con we con talked about it in the context of drugs last week. However, let's look at it differently now. In the NIV, it's translated to self-controlled. Behave carefully. Take life seriously. The Living Bible will translate. This is the only command Titus is told to emphasize to young men. But it's almost always the one we screw up. It's like Paul knows that younger guys are airheads and can't handle even one task. I love that line. Behave carefully. Because if you leave just a little room to slip up, boom, the whole thing crashes. Temptation lurks in every crevice. Every corner waiting to pounce. Sober-minded and self-controlled is almost like a catch-all. And men, yet we still struggle from the days of Paul to even now. Verse 7, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Pattern, that word means to develop a habit. In other words, don't just do a good thing here and there. Don't think you just met your quota for the week. It means to take, make a life out of it. Make a hobby out of doing good works. Indulge in good works. Now, does good works save you? Absolutely not. I know the book of James would tell us in chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. But that's because true faith produces good works. It's a byproduct of faith. If your life doesn't show good works in a natural overflow, no, yeah, it's your life. <laughs> Sorry about that. If your life doesn't show good works in a natural overflow of the Spirit inside you, then something's wrong. Something needs to be addressed. And you start addressing it on your knees, in prayer. And in doctrine, we are to rightly divide it. Don't add things to the Bible that aren't there. Don't take away things that should be shared. A lot of churches nowadays do things like that. They'll share bits and pieces of the Bible to present a message that's going to draw a crowd. And they avoid things like sin. They avoid topics like hell. And everyone comes to church and is oblivious. People think they're growing in the Lord, being misdirected because Churches aren't sharing the entire Word of God. That's why we go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Well, in a book by book sense, we'll kind of hop around. But um, we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, so we're not missing anything God has to tell us. You hear the whole thing. No sugarcoating. You hear the whole thing. Verse 9, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all fidelity, and that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our, of God our Savior in all things. A lot of people read this verse in, and in the Bible and say, see, see you Christians, you believe in slavery. That's sinful. Whoa, 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 hold on. Biblical slavery is much different than the slavery you may be thinking about. I've told you 
what the Greek translation of that word bondservant in chapter 1 means. It means doulos. But did you know what a bondservant meant in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture? Let me explain. A man had an opportunity to become a bondservant at any time in his life, or if you were a criminal, or you were down in the dumps, you made a lot of bad choices in your life, you could, let's say you had a neighbor's cousin's brother who had a piece of land, and you reach out to them and say, look, I live over here, I am your cousin's brother, whatever I said, would you allow me to be your bondservant? That person can actually decide yes or no. It's like, yeah, sure, you may be my bondservant. And it was a seven-year obligation of servitude. Servitude to the master and the family. And in return, they would clothe you, they would feed you, but you'd be put to work. At the end of seven years, you had the choice to either be set free, and with that came some inheritance a little bit from the, your master. They would set you off with a couple things to go, or you could say, hey, I have been so blessed of being a servant for you that I want to do this the rest of my life. I will serve you the rest of my life. And you had that opportunity. If that was the case, the owner could say, okay. You would be given a piercing in the ear, an earring, and you were what you would call a bond servant. That's a bond servant in the Hebrew culture. It's a restart. So that's very different from what you may think slavery is. Slavery should not be done in the way the Babylonians did it and the way what we did to Africans. That's not biblical slavery. So does the Bible endorse slavery? Yes, but in a biblical way, in a godly way. And the fact that we're addressing bond servants in this verse means that bond servants, sort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. In other words, Paul telling Titus to exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. The only way Titus would have had an audience with a bondservant is if the bondservants were allowed at church as well. Don't think slaves were in, what's the word I'm looking for? Undervalued. They were kind of considered part of the family. But nowadays, how would we take a bondservant and how would we apply that to us? It's similar to that of an employee and an employer now. As an employee, we can show the love of God by being obedient, hard workers. See, they wanted that report in two hours and you gave it in one. An employer says, wow, Andrew, Esmeralda, Brandon, you are such a good worker. Something's different about you, what is it? And you can say, is Jesus. Jesus. I work hard, not just for you, I do it for God, because it's a better representation of Him. we got to keep going. So let's go. Verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, the worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Just a brief reminder that we did not earn our salvation. Our ticket to a positive relationship with God and a promise of eternity with Him in heaven is a gift. You didn't buy it. You didn't work for it. You didn't win it or get lucky. You asked for it. And He gave it to you because He is gracious. He picked up the tab and paid it full with His only Son, to die. And once you have it, you know you do because it teaches us to deny worldly lusts and instead to chase righteousness. That's how you know. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Just a quick note, anyone who says the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God can shut up when they read this verse. It's right here in plain sight. He wasn't just a prophet or the Son of God, but actually God. He is our great God. Oh yeah, and He's our Savior. Verse 15, finishing up chapter 2. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. I love this verse because Paul is saying here that the Lord's direction, His commands for you, are to share with all authority. Meaning, Titus, the authority you have is no, the authority you have, Titus, is no authority at all. The authority is given by God. You are a messenger to the people under the authority of Jesus Christ which has been placed in you to rebuke others on his behalf. Let no one despise you, let no one rebel against you or speak ill of your message because ultimately it's not your message, it's his message. And if you got a problem with Titus, then you got a problem with God. Awesome, we made it through chapter two. I think we're going to do this. Let's turn in chapter 3 and let's get going. Verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. The grammar in the ancient Greek text remind is actually in the present tense. In other words, go on reminding is how it translates better. These Cretans are hard-headed. It goes one in, e in one ear and out the other. So keep reminding them. It'll get to them eventually. Remind them of what? Something we struggle, about, struggle with even in our own country. Not everybody likes the way the Oval Office is being run right now. Am I right? Feels like this country has never been more divided as it is right now. But guess what? Regardless of who you voted for, the Bible says to be subject to authorities, to obey. Here's the hard part. Speak evil of no one. That includes the Oval Office. That's a tough message. Keep in mind, Paul is writing this most likely in 64 or 65 AD, and any history buffs in here might remember that that is around the time that there was a fire where Nero Caesar blamed the Christians for it and began persecution upon the Christians. In other words, the government hated Christians. Paul's saying, be obedient to authorities. Be subject your authorities. And if he can do it, if they can do it, why can't we? It's not so much that you agree or disagree with whoever is the authority in your life, the authority of this country, but we are to respect the position. That's our obligation. Thank Paul for that obligation. Now it's in it's in text. Listen, there's a right and wrong way to make your opinions heard about our country. There's a right and wrong way to initiate change. Bad mouthing authority is not the right way. Gossiping about authority is not the right way. But in all things, act in love. You can disagree. You can take advantage of your right to protest. 
But regardless, pray for your authorities. Submit to authority. None of this not my president stuff. It doesn't stop there though. It goes beyond the Oval Office. It goes beyond government. It's police. It's your teacher at school. It's your boss, children. It's your parents. Wives. It's your husbands. Many times submission is the hardest part. You think you know better than them. No, you know better than them. But the Bible says to submit to them anyway. Verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, giving in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That key word there is were. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were serving every lust in our heart. But something happened. Something changed. What changed? Your acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And by that, agreeing to abide by His rules because He gave the ultimate sacrifice for your benefit. And you know what? He's worth it. He's always been worth it. He's worth the struggle. You know how you say you would do anything for someone? You take a bullet for this person? That, they're that special to you? That should be Jesus. Because Jesus said that about us. He took the bullet. He took the cross. Before you were born. It's because of him that you are no longer foolish, disobedient, living in malice and envy. Now you can say no to that and live a life of love, patience, kindness, and wisdom. Verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The message is a gentle reminder. You can't earn it. You can't earn salvation. It was given to us through His grace and mercy. My wife and I have a story. It was um, before Valerie was saved and we were dating my mother sat us down in my room once and had a stern conversation with us. She told Valerie, Valerie, you know, even good people go to hell. I think, like, uh, okay, I think Valerie was in shock that day, completely, had no words for it, but she's right. Good people do go to hell. Because Good works doesn't save you. That's a true story. It's salvation through Jesus Christ that keeps us out of hell. Not how good a person you are. And in a way, it's sad because I know so many good people. And it hurts to think about when you consider the afterlife. So why just cry about it? Do something. Say something. Talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about what He's done for their lives. Maybe it's exactly what they needed to hear to start seeking their Heavenly Father. We're not called to grow the plant. God doesn't say that you have to save people. He just simply says, share the message. That's enough.
by you sharing your message, by you living a life by example, that's enough to be a testimony to change other people's lives. It was a couple of days ago, um, we were invited to an event. It was a, my wife and I are part of a, a group called Yelp Elites. And sometimes they give us uh, free dinners at restaurants. They pay for everything and it's like, yes, we got dinner covered tonight. Well, they sat us at a table. Um, there was about three other people we didn't know. It was me, my wife, and little baby Joey, who was well-behaved that day, by the way. And we're sitting across, uh, across the table, and we're learning about some other people, asking starter icebreaker questions. And eventually, the guy in front of me um, asked me a little bit about my injury, and I just shared with him a little bit, and what happened to me, this and that. And then he says, have humbled me because you're so joyful <laughs> and I felt like I, I felt, if we we're if you're a fisherman I felt like there was a nibble nibble on the line and I told him it's Jesus I had that opportunity I saw it I was like it's Jesus and I forgot why I was telling you that story <laughs> oh yeah. Nope, I lost it again. <laughs> Why did I tell you that story? Oh yeah, good people go to hell too. When people see the joy in your heart, they notice. They notice. It's a reminder in my life when things like that happen to me because I know there is something different about me. But it's God who's worked through me. It's His power, not mine. So as you live a life for Jesus, that's an active reflection onto others of what Jesus has done through your life. Take advantage of it because it's a powerful message and you don't even know it. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That verse 6 starts with whom. So who is whom? He saved us through the washing of regeneration of the renewing of, all, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just an it. Is it, it isn't a weird breeze or draft that you felt come from under the door. You didn't shudder. Ooh, I felt the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit isn't a brief wind, guys. Keep in mind the Holy Trinity. The God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't an it. It's a whom. Holy Spirit is our helper sent to us by Jesus, and it's a whom? It's a, it's our God. And just as the Son, just as Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, if you see the Holy Spirit, you've seen God as well. The Holy Spirit is God just as much as Jesus is. So Holy Trinity. People don't talk about the Holy Trinity as much anymore. But it's true. All three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are one. Verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified. I love that word. It's His grace that makes us justified. Or, better put, just as, I, just as if I never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. Hosea tells us that God cannot look upon sin, but He could look upon you. He could look upon you because you've been justified. Oh yeah. Anyone here have student debt? I know you do, Valerie. <laughs> well, I know you do. <laughs> well, imagine someone came up to you and said, hey, your student debt, books, 
the tuition, the room and board, all of it, I'm paying for all of it. Your account balance is zero. What would you do if that in real life? What if, what if someone did that for you? Would your jaw drop? Do you know how much debt I have, sir or ma'am? Yeah, and I'm paying it all. All those bills that you owe, I pay, I'm paying it all. I'm zeroing out your account. You're good. That's justified. What about gone? Verse eight. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should become careful, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Uh, the, this verse, starting with this is a faithful saying, is referring to the previous verse. And Titus teach these things over and over. The Bible is nothing new. It's the same message it's been for centuries. I'm not called to reinvent the wheel. I'm just called to keep it rolling. And you're going to hear messages throughout your life over and over again. And that's okay. Because as Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded of the same thing over and over again. Because we're hard-headed. We're sinners. True story. This is the same message that's been told for centuries. And sometimes we need to hear the messages a couple times before they actually stick. And that's okay. But avoid foolish disputes, verse 9. Genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. These are things Paul actually told Timothy as well. Arguing about insignificant things is profitable to no one. What type of insignificant things? For example, uh, who, who were the wives of Cain and Abel? Or if Jesus died on a Friday and the third day, wouldn't that be Monday? Listen, use, useless things. Those are the type of things that cause division within a church. And Paul says, avoid them. Avoid these foolish disputes. It's times like that where we need to agree to disagree and just love Jesus together. Verse 10, reject a, a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing such a person, person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We mentioned this just a bit earlier. We welcome sinners, right? That's why you welcome me. I'm a sinner. Non-Christians alike, how do you handle guests or even your own that causes the faith of purity of others to weaken or fail? Paul tells us. Pastors, future pastors, after multiple times asking to correct the issue, if it persists, show them the door. Why? Because we need to protect the flock. Simple as that. We need to make sure that your sense of security in the house of God remains a haven from spiritual attack as much as possible. Church should feel like home. When you come to church, do you feel like, I am home? And if you don't, that's our goal. We would like that. How do we do it? By keeping it a haven from spiritual attack as much as possible. You should be, feel comfortable being among your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if someone wants to break up the family, what do we call that nowadays? Home wreckers? We tell them, not my home. Not my church. Not my family. We're united. For Jesus. Verse 12. And we get to wrap up the chapter. When I sent Artemis to you, or, or oh, I hate this name. Tychicus, maybe? 
But I said Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those with love. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And with that, we finish the book of Titus. Isn't that awesome? Yay! I don't know what's stirring in your heart. But if something's stirring, don't ignore it. That's the Holy Spirit actively working. I hope that you can take a message and bring it home with you. Not just listening and letting it go in one ear and out the other, but that you can apply to it Monday through Saturday as well. I mentioned this last week, but that's why we have midweek studies, so we can get refreshed in the middle of the week. So I'm excited to see what next week looks like, because Pastor Chris is going to be back, and we're going to start the book of Revelation. If you ever read the book of Revelation, it is wicked. So get ready for that. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Godfather, we want to thank you so much for the blessing of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to thank you that you've given us all a mission, Lord. That you've given us all an obligation, a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to others in our church, to the younger men, the older men, the young women, the older women, whenever we get them. <laughs> Lord, thank you for every individual here. We ask that we can take home whatever you're speaking in our hearts and apply it to our lives. Change our hearts every single day. Give us a heart of worship, Lord. Soften our spirit to be able to edify you on a daily basis. Let us be an active reflection of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives to others. Thank you for this church. Ask, us to, ask that you please forgive us all of our sins, Lord. Cleanse us. Wash us. Make us new. Thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet Guys, you are dismissed.